Welcome to Oncology Today, Renal Cell Carcinoma Edition, a special audio program focused on current and future roles of immunotherapeutic combinations in RCC. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met jointly with Dr. Tony Shueri and Professor Thomas Powles. To begin, Professor Powles talked about risk stratification and selection of first-line therapy for patients with metastatic RCC. The series of things that go through my head when I see these patients is I normally get their case reports first. And the first thing I think about is what the histology do they have, number one. And then number two is where are their sites of disease. And those two are the first two thoughts. And clearly, we're going to talk predominantly about clear cell. And I think I'm going to talk pretty much exclusively about that unless asked otherwise. So I'll assume we're talking about clear cell. And the second piece is, you know, where is the disease? So two questions. Number one is, have they had an operation previously? If they have advanced or metastatic disease, which I assume they were talking about again today, have they had an operation previously? So have they relapsed after nephrectomy? Yes or no. And then the second key question is, where are their sites of disease? And so do they have metastasis in the visceral organs, the lungs, Is it just lymph node disease? I worry about brain, liver, and bone, and I tend to put those together. And then lung metastasis and lymph node metastasis tend to worry me less. So histology first, then sites of disease and disease burden, whether or not they've had an nephrectomy, yes or no. And then the last piece is then their IMDC score. So what risk group are they in, good, intermediate, and poor? And I like to have that kind of information before we see the patient and go in the detail of what their past medical history is like and how fit they are and what their expectations are and what they would like. So actually, it's relatively straightforward. We don't have that many options. Histology, nephrectomy, yes or no, sites and burden of disease, and then their risk score. Tony, where do we stand today on the age-old question of cytoreductive nephrectomy? I mean, Neil, this is a good question. And I think, at least at our center, we have not really changed much what we do, even based on the Carmina study, that pivotal study that showed that cytoreductive nephrectomy, at least when you get sunitinib, may not yield an overall survival compared to not getting cytoreductive nephrectomy because we really did not include patient with poor risk or patient with poor performance status. We still do it in the appropriate patient, but certainly I do believe that it was done more more than it should be done in some situations. So I think it's still important part to remember that cytoreductive nephrectomy, especially in these patients that have limited disease burden, a lot of them could be followed sometimes without therapy or could be rendered disease-free, especially if they can get into surgery. The bigger question is, Sunitinib is not a standard today, and should we repeat the nephrectomy, the cytoreductive nephrectomy question with more potent and modern therapies such as the combination of pembrolizumab and exitinib or the combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab? And I think people are split here 
and you will see some that says this trial will not happen. And even if it happens, although there is, I would say, a SWOG proposal from one of the cooperative group, folks are saying even if it is, you know, to happen, you have drugs that are more potent than sunitinib. So the premise that, you know, cytoreductive nephrectomy can help a drug that is less potent won't exist here. So why doing the trial? I think selection, selection, selection is important here. And it brings me back to a multidisciplinary care where if you have metastatic disease and your primary is still in place, it's very important to have you know, your clinic next to a urologist and discuss this in a multidisciplinary fashion, Neil. So Tom, can you talk a little bit about some of the new data sets that have come out in the first line setting? Tony mentioned pembrolizumab axitinib, also evalumab and axitinib. And of course, we had Ipinevo before that in terms of some of the newer data sets that now are affecting first-line decisions. Tom, can you kind of go through those and sort of what your perspective is about where you utilize these strategies or where you would like to utilize them? Yeah, so Neil, that's great. And it's become complicated because actually there are four combinations where we have information on randomized phase three data. The first is Ipinevo, which is a PD-1 inhibitor, nivolumab, plus CTLA-4 inhibitor, which is ipilimumab. And that's a thousand patient randomized phase three study that has a label in both Europe and the United States with level one evidence in intermediate and poor risk patients. There's no label in good risk patients because in that randomized phase three study, the ipinevo, the immune therapy, was outperformed by sunitinib. And as I see it, there's a debate going on in that place, but that debate as it currently stands, without that label, I think we should only be selecting ipinevo for intermediate and poorest patients. This trial had an overall survival hazard ratio of 0.63 in this population initially, so a big overall survival advantage for intermediate and poorest patients. We had long-term durable responders and we had better quality of life than we had with sunitinib. So an excellent combination, patients living longer and feeling better with durable remissions in intermediate and poorest patients. Before you go on, I just want to get Tony's take on this. Any thoughts about why there wasn't a benefit seen with the good risk patients? Biologically, it's kind of hard for me to figure that out. What's your take on that, Tony? And if you could, would you use the drug in good risk patients? Yeah, so I agree with everything Tom said in one of those situations where European and American do agree. So whatever he said, I'm in complete agreement. I agree but with I want to supplement. <laughs> I want to supplement that because Tom said something extremely important, and I want to make sure this is captured. You know, looking at overall survival, which of course has been seen in the pembrolizumab, exitinib, and nivolumab, Ipilumumab is a great thing. It's the gold standard in oncology. But one thing about the nivolumab, ipilumumab, which the combination of excitinib, pembrolizumab, or excitinib and ivilumab doesn't have yet, is the rate of complete response that is over 10%. And let's remember that this is a combination where you're done with ipi and you continue nivolumab maintenance. So this is a good endpoint to look at could be equivalent, and I don't like always to put the word cure here, to 
let's say, long-term remission. Having said so, I would also argue that the data is very mature and the follow-up with nivolumab and ipilimumab. It is not yet as much mature with the median follow-up of one year, I believe, in both excitinib-based combinations. So there is a chance that the CR rate, you know, becomes around 10% or gets higher with times. That's an important point to agree on. And another point I want to say is that, yes, all these combinations, and you heard about pembrolizumab, excitinib, excitinib-avilumab, nivo-ipi, have been approved, at least in the U.S. There will be other combinations also coming potentially, and all of these have the same comparator, sunitinib. So the landscape going to be complicated, and what folks are going to do, and I don't know if the question will ever be answered which one is better, but the next question is how to build on this. And going back to your question about the good risk, I didn't forget that, Neil. I don't think we know exactly what is the difference. However, there is some translational data that come from our group, but also from Tom, who's been heavily involved in the combination of atezolizumab and bevacizumab. What is interesting here is perhaps the patient that respond to sunitinib or have long-term remission have an angiogenic profile. So are these patients also the same good risk patient? I think this is very important to look at specifically because there must be something biologic where the IMDC risk group, which is a simple clinical variable, is capturing in an indirect fashion. So, Tom, just to continue on a little bit more about Ipinevo, what do we know about the effect of this combination in the brain and melanoma? We're seeing really great results with the combination. How about in renal cell? Yeah, Neil, so I love the question because I think it's important. I saw a patient where we had this dilemma. She was a lady, 37 years old, actually from Spain originally, and has got really a big brain metastasis, very small lung disease, has intermediate risk disease. She's not had an infection. We've done a biopsy. She's got clear cell renal cancer, and we've given stereotactic radiation. She's got two or three different areas. And the difficulty now we have is, you know, what is the brain data for ipinevo, and we don't know. The assumption that melanoma and kidney cancer are the same, well, that's not true. We know melanoma has a very high mutational burden, has a different T-cell infiltration, different pdl one status to renal cancer, which seems unique. So just assuming things are going to be the same, probably flawed. We've got some monotherapy nivolumab data from France. Laurence Albigay's excellent data. And it shows that there is some activities and monotherapy, but it doesn't look fantastic. What we do know is that sunitinib as a monotherapy or pazopinib doesn't seem to be magic in these patients. I've seen some remissions with these drugs, but it's not like they're getting fantastic results. Let's have a look at the ipinevidase. Let's collect that information. But I don't think it's currently a contraindication. And remember, if you don't give these drugs to start with, particularly in Europe, it's hard to subsequently give them. You can't mix and match towards the end and suddenly give Ipinevo fourth line or fifth line. You know, you either give it now or you don't. So I think that my personal perspective of this is it's a reasonable approach. I actually look at axitinib and pembrolizumab as attractive in these patients as well. Tony, what about the issue of tolerability toxicity with Ipinevo specifically in the renal cell population, particularly as patients get older and have more comorbidities? 
Yeah, I mean, it's illegitimate. I don't think there is a direct relationship like cytotoxic chemotherapy sometimes with age. I look mostly at, you know, physiologic age, but comorbidities are important to take notice. And I agree totally with the opening question when Dr. Powell's, his, you know, his way to look at kidney cancer patients when they see them, metastatic kidney cancer. I will add two things that are therapy dependent and in context. I asked about prior autoimmune disease, which is very prevalent and many times not well captured in the past medical history. So I had patient that said they had arthritis and when I checked the list of medication, and you know how we are busy in our oncology practice seeing many patients, the patient was on methotrexate. Wow. So upon further, you know, asking them again, I had to send them to a rheumatologist and actually, you know, they had rheumatoid arthritis. I have to consider again. Same thing I asked about the cardiovascular diseases, if I wanna, especially stroke and recent myocardial infarction, CHF, if I wanna use TKI, those very, very important. But I would say both TKI, IO, and IO, IO are generally safe. With nivolumab and ipilimumab, you have a significant risk of immune-related adverse event from both drugs, probably more so ipilimumab. And that led, at least on the phase three trial, to treatment discontinuation due to the immune-related adverse event in around 20% of patients. This is something to really be careful about and educate the community about. So I want to talk also, I'm going to go through all these new combinations that have come out. Tom, there are two combinations now that are approved, at least in the United States, with axitinib, evelumab, and pembrolizumab. Can you go through the data with both of those and, again, what your clinical take is on that? Yeah, so um, thanks, Neil. I think that this is data that has been available now for about nine months with evalumab and axitinib, which I'll start with, if I may. The evalumab axitinib data, evalumab is a PDL one inhibitor rather than a PD-1 inhibitor. We don't yet know if there are big differences between PD-1 and PDL1, and this is a really important question that we will need to get to the bottom of over the next few years. Before you go on, could I just pick up on that in terms, you know, kind of when checkpoint numbers came out, originally there was this question, at this point, Tom, is there any evidence in any cancer or any way to differentiate anti-PD-8? We're going to talk later about uh, tezolizumab, that's another PDL one agent. Anything in terms of efficacy or tolerability at all that differentiates them? No, no, it's very difficult. And actually, what we do have is, which I think is relevant, is the mechanism of action is different. And so PDL1 inhibition spares PDL2 binding. And PDL2 binding was originally thought to be important because it was overexpressed in the lungs. And the association with that original pneumonitis story described in lung cancer with PD1 inhibitors. So the PDL1 inhibitors sparing PDL2 binding was thought it may be better tolerable. So that's one of the issues around there. If you look at the distribution of PD1 and PDL1, the reason we measure in PDL1 expression, we never measure PD1 expression, is PD1 is expressed on a whole series of T cells and immune cells. PDL1 is expressed on tumor cells and mainly antrum-presenting cells. So the distribution is also different. So I don't think it's just a hypothetical difference between the two. There is some real difference both in terms of the distribution of expression, but also the binding and the sparing of binding of 
V71 and PDL2. So I think the assumption that they're the same is probably not true. When we look from the back of the room as it currently appears, there does appear to be a series of positive trials in lung cancer for PDL1 inhibitors and PD1 inhibitors. But one of the more direct, or dare I say it, indirect direct comparators has actually been these Evalumab, Axitinib, Pembrolizumab axitinib trials. And the reason why is they were done at a similar time. There was a global enrollment. The control arm was the same. The standard dosing of axitinib was the same. The methodology was very similar. There are many more similarities than there are differences between these trials. And what the two trials showed was the response rate for axitinib and pembrolizumab and axitinib and evalumab was actually much higher than with sunitinib in the region of 60%. And we also showed progression-free survival hazard ratios were really impressive as well in the 0.6s. And so they were both very similar to one another. The toxicity profiles and the two combinations were similar. But the one difference between the two at this particular follow-up period was the survival signal was 0.53 for a hazard ratio for axisnib and pembrolizumab and 0.78 for the combination of evalumab and axisnib. Now, that's an interim analysis and we need to see more mature data, but all things being equal, the PFS and uh, response rates and toxicity profiles look similar, but there do seem to be subtle differences in this survival signal that may turn out to be really important. Two things. Number one is pembrolizumab in a number of different cancers has appeared to perform extremely well, where other drugs sometimes have struggled. And so I think there is a halo effect around pembrolizumab. We haven't got to the bottom of the biology of that yet because there's also some lung cancer data where pembrolizumab has succeeded and nivolumab another PD-1 inhibitor, has struggled in the same environment. So it's not quite as black and white as PD-1 versus PD-L1. And remember that Evalumab is a bit unique as both a PD-L1 inhibitor in that it has some ADCC activity, it generates antibodies, and that may be relevant as well. So, you know, it's one of those things where you scratch the surface of trying to look at the difference between these drugs and you can come up with broad statements, but when you actually peel back behind these layers, it gets more and more complex. So to summarize, at the moment, we don't really know that there's a difference. These two trials, the Javelin trial and the 426 trial, actually do show this difference in survival signal between the two drugs. The probably easiest explanation as that currently stands is the drugs are not the same, but one could argue we need to see more mature data and there were subtle differences between the trials that may have accounted for some of the differences. So, Tony, it is said that you shouldn't be comparing trials indirectly, although everybody does it every single day. But what is your take on this issue that Tom just went through in terms of these two axitinib trials and these results? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the data is the data. There is the preclinical evidence, and I can tell you it was all emerging that these are preclinically the same, at least in a way that will get you the same effect, despite what Tom, you know, mentioned, that not just PDL2 is spared with PDL1 inhibitor, but interaction between the immune cell and the tumor cells, you know, are different. The distribution is different and based on each tumor type. And the clinical result came, initially they weren't much different, but now we are, they're different. They're trials and histology dependent, but what Tom mentioned, 
that the Accetinib, Pembro, and Accetinib, Avilumab have many more similarity than differences. And you have one study with an OS benefit, another perhaps not yet with an OS benefit, although response rate and PFS benefit, you know, are there. So for everything where a PD-1 is maybe better than a PD-L1 inhibitor, there are the counter argument. The example I'm going to give you, which is probably the purest example, again, comparing across trial, which you don't like, Tom doesn't like, I don't like, but we're doing it. So is single agent, untreated patient with clear cell RCC, where pembrolizumab data from David McDermott resulted in a response rate around 36%, I believe. With avilumab, it was only 16%. However, what you look at the median progression-free survival, noting these are not randomized, these are single-arm trial, it was in the eight months range. So it was depending how you look at it. NPFS is a primary endpoint in many trials. So I think a lot to be said. I think with Accetinib and Avilumab, hopefully we'll have another analysis for overall survival. And at that time, you know, for more event, we'll be able to know better what's going on. The biggest thing is the future, I think. And hopefully you will touch base on meaning other combination, one. And second, building on a new standard of care in the control arm, which is nivolumab, epilumumab, axiavilumab, axipembrolizumab with new agents and new assets. Yeah, I want to get into new, but just one other thing to get back to this PDL1 versus PD1, Tony. My primitive understanding was PDL1 binds the ligand and PD1 binds the receptor. Is that too basic or is that the way it is. Basic is okay. I think basic is okay. I think this is very reasonable. I think L2 is spared in the PDL1 when you spare L2. And there is evidence that PDL2 may not be as inert as we think in terms of prognosis and cancer progression. What Tom said, at least the rumor there that initially when we start using these drugs and came in clinic in phase one, is that you need to perhaps spare L2. L2 is expressed in the lung at the pneumocyte level, and that's why patients are having pneumonitis. And I would say there was a lot of cases of pneumonitis initially, perhaps maybe not if you consider the denominator, but perhaps they were hyped or emphasized more. And these were scary. However, I would say with more phase two and phase three data now coming with thousands of patients, I don't know what Tom thinks, but I don't think pneumonitis emerged as a big, huge immune-related adverse event. If something emerged, it's probably more so the gastrointestinal and the colitis rather than the pneumonitis. That's interesting. Tom, any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I think that what Tony said is correct. And I think that the biology of PD, PDL1 inhibitors, because they're expressed on a broad spectrum of cells beyond the tumor. And I think that complicates sort of simple messaging. But essentially, what you've said is correct. And that piece of the biology is relatively important. It's important to remember that actually we also measure PDL1 expression in the immune component as well, that shows it's expressed beyond just the tumor cells. And that can be prognostic in a lot of different cancers. And so I think it's an interaction of immune and immune cells, T cells and antigen presenting cells, and of course, T cells and tumor cells together. So I would look at it as a complex piece 
that's ongoing in terms of our discovery of how these drugs are working. But essentially what you've said is correct. And to emphasize Tony's point, when you look at Ivalimab response rates and Pembrolizumab response rates on the phase one as single agents, you can do similar work in second line bladder cancer, where Keynote 45's got a response rate in bladder cancer second line of 21%, atezolizumab, a PDL1 inhibitor of 13%. So you can sometimes see those differences, but you also can go away and you can find areas where actually PDL1 inhibitors, for example, small cell lung cancer and triple negative breast cancer, where atezolizumab has performed extremely well and is leading the field. So I think sometimes we try and oversimplify these areas. I'm really keen that we try and keep it tumor specific. I think kidney cancer is different from melanoma. I think it's different from lung cancer. We know that IL-2 actually work quite well in some kidney cancer patients. That certainly wasn't the case in lung cancer. And yet we're using these PD-PDL1 inhibitors in similar groups. So we need to be very clear that kidney cancer is specific and we need to be looking at these drugs because they may be the same or different in kidney cancer and that can be completely different from what's going on in lung cancer. As it currently stands, the jury's out, but what's available to us suggests that PD-1 inhibitors, nivolumab and pembrolizumab, have both had positive randomized phase 3 frontline trials with survival, whereas atezolizumab with bevacizumab and with ivalimab and axisnib, the PDL1 inhibitors, as it currently stands, have not yet had positive trials for survival. So two PD1s both performing with survival advantages, as yet that's not the case with the PDL1 inhibitors. So common sense at this point suggests that this one group of drugs seems to be outperforming the other as it currently stands. I was just flashing on Bob Mozer's presentation of sunitinib data. I think it was at Orlando before you ASCO even went to Chicago. And, and now here we are talking about, you know, all these combinations and multiple phase three trials coming out. Amazing. So getting back to indirect comparisons, trying to build on this platform, Tony, how do you indirectly compare the efficacy of Ipinevo versus these two AXI combinations? It is definitely hard to compare, and hopefully there will be trial at least to compare between them. But there are some important differences. The good risk, for example, the IMDC good risk, 20% of all patients, if you need to be treated, because many IMDC good risk have at the same time small tumor burden and may not be treated immediately. But let's say you have something that is a patient IMDC good risk and you feel that they need to be treated, it is very hard to justify nivolumab and ipilimab in this population because sunitinib in terms of response rate, PFS, seem to do better. But why I've seen some folks even using nivolumab, ipilimab in good risk? Two reasons. You could have patients that don't have a small disease burden, one, even though they're on paper IMDC good risk. Remember, these risk criteria, despite we came up with, are certainly not perfect. And second, the response rate in terms of CR, and there is a lot of emphasis on CR and potential putting the patient in a long-term remission, remains higher with nivolumab, ipilimumab, in the good risk group. So if you're targeting CR and you have this discussion with the patient, it's not completely unreasonable to think about nivolumab and ipilimumab. But saying it's totally okay in good risk patient, you know, without having this discussion with patient is probably not the best idea. Tom, can you talk a little bit about the toxicity 
issues with these two axi combinations of putting together a VEGF TKI and a checkpoint inhibitor, what was seen and what do you see clinically and globally? How do you compare it indirectly again to you, the patients you use Epinevo on? Yeah, so you know, I think the issue, the first part to that question is, are there ways of comparing the two groups from an efficacy perspective? And certainly I think the choice is between ipilimumab and nivolumab or axisinib and pembrolizumab. I can see advantages and disadvantages from an efficacy perspective of both. I think from a response from a PFS and from an overall survival perspective, axisinib and pembrolizumab seems to be performing really well in unselected patients. I think that ipilimumab and nivolumab is not performing well in the good risk patients and from a PFS perspective didn't hit its original endpoint. From a complete response perspective, and Tony's talked about this, there's an ongoing debate about what a complete response really is because not all patients can achieve a complete response and we need to articulate that debate over the next 12 months, which I think we'll do. But certainly the ipilimumab and nivolumab data has longer-term follow-up data as it currently stands. And as Tony said previously, we know that we've got ongoing durable responses in that group. And I think it's that piece that makes the ipilimumab and nivolumab attractive. So there are attractive aspects of axipembro, which we've described, and there are some attractive aspects of ipinevo. And then the next piece, of course, is around tolerability and toxicity. We haven't yet seen the quality of life data on axitinib and pembrolizumab. The ipinevo quality of life data looks superior to sunitinib. Many people talk about ipilimumab and nivolumab being difficult to tolerate. And I think it requires interventions, particularly medical interventions, while you're giving the combination. But from a patient's perspective, maybe only 20 or 30% of patients are actually getting into trouble with the drug requiring steroids or cessation. Now, that, from a doctor's perspective, is important because if you let transaminitis or colitis or pneumonitis drift, you know, we can put patients in harm's way really quickly. So the medical community really needs to be keyed up to these toxicity issues. We are attached to three emergency departments at our hospital. We did a survey of our emergency doctors, what they knew about toxicity associated with these drugs. And actually 90% of our emergency doctors found it difficult to distinguish between an immune checkpoint inhibitor and a chemotherapy drug. And that's really important because when patients get ill in the middle of the night, that's who they're seeing first. And number two is they're also saying that neutropenic sepsis is a big concern of theirs. And so they're not giving steroids and they're talking about giving antibiotics and fluids. That's not good. Wow. And so there's a huge education piece to talk about before we come into the detail of comparing toxicity. And one of my key messages to people right now is don't worry about indirect comparisons of the two drugs yet. Let's talk about that in the fullness of time. But please, let's make sure our patients are safe. And so that's make sure the patients are informed well, they are attached to a 24-hour community that they can speak to, get advice from, and then let's make absolutely sure they're not turning up blindfolded to emergency departments saying, I think I'm on a chemotherapy drug and I'm not feeling well. So patient information, absolutely crucial. 24-hour hotline numbers, nursing and doctor support. That currently is the most important message as we're giving these drugs in first-line renal cancer to unselected broad groups of patients. And that's really where I'd like to start this discussion before we move on to the subtle differences between ipinevo and axipembro. 
Yeah, I think that's really a great point. Before we hear about the other combination, Atezo, Bev, just to go back to you, Tony, in terms of choosing between the approved options at this point, can you talk a little bit of how you do that? I mean, I think it's a discussion with patient. Today, if a patient comes, luckily, both Tom and I continue to have, you know, trials in the first-line setting. But if patients, you know, it's going to be first, you know, if it's not a trial, if it's a trial, great. If it's not a trial, it's going to be the exclusion. So we talk about, is this patient have significant cardiovascular disease, recent strokes? I mean, we see these patients, and we see them a lot. We don't hear about them in clinical trial. They'll never be eligible. So maybe I want to avoid the VEGFTKI, and I go with Nevoepi. If a patient, you know, have some sort of an autoimmune disease where I think the consultant said that, you know, checkpoint blocker may be okay. I certainly don't want to go with two of them, and I may go with one of them, and I may go with pembroxy. So first is, is there a trial? Second, is there an exclusion criteria? And three, which I would have by that time is the IMDC risk group. I'm still, I could discuss with a patient if they're good risk, Nevo, EP, but I probably go with a VEGF, IO combination. And after that, it's a discussion with the patient about the pros and the cons. So with nivolumab and ipilimumab, is the CR. How much this is a chance of CR? And I wish we do have Tom and Neil predictors of that CR of 10, 12%. What really predicts CR or near CR? We don't have that yet. And second is, you know, the schedule. So with nivolumab and ipilimumab, you, after four infusions of ipilimumab, you are done and your nivolumab is maintenance every four weeks. With pembrolizumab and excitinib, it's visit every three weeks, although there are talks about pembrolizumab moving to a less frequent schedule. And with exitinib, it's continuous treatment, although this TKI is quite well tolerated in general and have a short half-life, so you could adjust with it. So they're different, but again, it's one of those situations. I think, Neil, probably the closest thing in prostate cancer when we had abiraterone and enzalutamide at the same time, and folks in prostate cancer tried to make the difference that perhaps in zalutamide, because abiraterone comes with five milligram twice a day of prednisone, which I looked at and said, that's really not a huge deal because you could do five once a day, which is great physiologic, but we arrived to that degree. So that's my two cents in general. Yes, yeah, a great analogy. Just to clarify one thing you said though, Tony, did you say that if people have a history of cardiovascular disease, you shy away from TKIs? I don't think I've heard that. Yeah, so I did have actually recently a patient that had months before, and that's how his metastatic kidney cancer was discovered, a massive stroke with deficit, but lucky enough, he was near a medical center and it was reversible. But in this patient, especially with what VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibitor can do with potential you know, effects on the vasculature, at least I could stay, I stay away a bit from VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibitor if patient just recently had an event, a myocardial infarction, ST elevation, MI, a stroke, or even if patient have uncontrolled CHF, congestive heart failure. We have published in the past with the era of sunitinib and sorafenib that the risk of these drugs in patient on trial, we pulled trial, may be higher. The absolute risk, I would say, remains small. So that's important. But again, if I have an alternative, 
that's great. And I can use these later on. I'm amazed at how many things I haven't heard before, and that's one of them, but really interesting. Let's sort of round this out in terms of, you know, where things are and where things are heading with the Atezo-Bev story, Tom. Can you talk about that data? Yeah, I can. So the Atezo-Lizumab-Bev program has probably been the most thoughtful of all the programs. They did a phase one trial and then a randomized phase two study. In the randomized phase two study, they had three arms of sunitinib, Atezolizumab, and then Atezolizumab and Bevacizumab. Bevacizumab is a monoclonal antibody to the ligand. Atezolizumab is a PD-L1 inhibitor, which obviously is distinct from nivolumab, and pembrolizumab, which are PD-1 inhibitors. The randomized phase two data showed in the biomarker positive group defined with the 142 antibody that there seemed to be a benefit for the bevacizumab atezolizumab combination in those individuals who overexpressed the biomarker compared to sunitinib. And for that reason, that arm was taken forward as the primary endpoint of their randomized phase three study. The randomized phase three had all comers. PFS was the primary endpoint in the biomarker positives, and then OS was the primary endpoint in the ITT population. They hit the PFS endpoint, so they have a positive randomized phase three trial. But when you looked at the updated OS signal, the most recent signal that was published in the Lancet about three months ago, and this work was led by Brian Rinney and Bob Motzer, this work showed the hazard ratio for survival was in the 0.9s. That's more mature than the data we've seen for axiovalumab and for axipembrolizumab. It's more like a sort of an 18-month, two-year survival cut. And I think at that point, it suggests to us that although we've hit PFS, which has been a great endpoint for drugs like sunitinib and pazopinib and axitinib in the past, remember the axitinib serafinib data hit PFS but didn't have an OS advantage. So in the past, we've been happy with PFS as an endpoint. But because Ipinevo's got an overall survival hazard ratio of 0.63, you know, which is a 37% reduction in the risk of death, and because Axipembro half the risk of reduction of death, you know, a 47% reduction in the risk of death, it makes that bevacizumab or tezolizumab look uncompetitive because patients will clearly want to pursue the survival signal. Why is the bevatezo combination at this point not performing like the Axipembro combination. And we've had that debate already today. We don't know the answer to that. One could say, is it because the bevacizumab is less active? We know the bevacizumab, atezolizumab response rate is not the same as axitinib or ivalimab or axitinib and pembrolizumab. It's all like 40% versus 60%. So bevatezo might not be quite as strong as the VEGF TKIs. And so we might be losing something there from a response perspective, which may be important. And then the second chapter to the story is, are PD-1 inhibitors and PDL one inhibitors the same? We don't know the answer to that question. My gut feeling on this is bevacizumab doesn't seem to be performing as well as axitinib in the frontline setting by indirect comparisons that we shouldn't do, just looking at response rates. And under those circumstances, that may be contributing a little bit. But as it currently stands, this combination doesn't have a pivotal randomized phase three in the frontline space. And so we are waiting for a final survival analysis, which we don't yet have. But if that survival analysis is not positive, I don't think this drug combination will end up being widely used. 
The one caveat I'd say to that is there isn't a tezolizumab renal cancer adjuvant study, and that adjuvant study called Emotion 010 has finished its recruitment and is a really exciting and maybe our first adjuvant study to read out. So it may be that we don't see a tezolizumab in the frontline space, but we may see a positive adjuvant study. We may be using it as a monotherapy, as adjuvant therapy in the future. That's really interesting, Tom. What other major phase three adjuvant trials with checkpoint inhibitors are going on right now? Well, Tony leads one. Tony, why don't you talk about that? What's yours, Tony? Yeah, thank you, Neil and Tom. So the 010, the emotion is finished accrual, actually, and is an exciting study. The other ones, there is an adjuvant study of 950 patients with pembrolizumab versus a placebo. And that study also allows a very interesting population of M1 and ED. I don't know how many patients we're going to end up with M1 and ED because that's a question that oncologists in the community always ask me about. This patient that had kidney cancer and had a liver mat or a pulmonary mat that was resected. This patient is stage four and they come and what is the treatment? We do have two randomized trials, very small trial. I think both of them, Tom knows, both of them were oral presentation at ASCO this year and the year before. Very small, one from Italy and one from ECOG. And there is no disease-free survival or overall survival benefit with sorafenib or pazopinib. So now we have several adjuvant studies allowing M1 and ED. That's very important. Another study was a combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab. And that study, the interesting thing about the study, all high-risk renal cell cancer, is that it limits the treatment to six months while the atezolizumab and pembrolizumab limit the therapy to one year. Two other studies I want to highlight, academically led. One study was one of my colleagues from ECOG and Dana-Farber, Dr. Lauren Harshman, which is the PROSPER study. And that study is no treatment versus nivolumab, the PD-1 inhibitor, before nephrectomy and after nephrectomy. So it's not an adjuvant study. It's a perioperative study that involves a lot of academic centers. And finally, a study that just started with uh, leadership from the Medical Research Council in the UK, for which Tom is the vice chair, and I'm on the steering committee. It's a study actually with three arms. Patients don't get any therapy versus they get durvalumab. Durvalumab is a PD-L1 inhibitor versus the combination of trimelumumab and durvalumab. And this study is a large study of more than 1,750 patients. I believe, and Tom can correct me, the therapy duration here with systemic treatment is one year, I believe, in the combination arm. Very exciting. One of them finished, and then need we may get into the same problem. Imagine if one of the study reads positive while one of the studies still enrolling. But however, our experience with adjuvant studies, even in high risk, that these studies need time to read and be powered for the primary endpoint. So these studies may change how we treat kidney cancer. And suddenly, overnight, from what is the best combination? Is it nevo-IP, pembroaxi, avilumab-axi, pembrolizumab plus lymphantinib, cabozentinib, nivolumab? What should we do? But when the adjuvant studies are positive, then you have a population either cured or progressed, but progressed after a PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitor. The data for first-line untreated IO-naive patient may not apply. So I think that's why 
Tom and I, you know, continue always with our research we have in clinic, investing in new asset in this post-IO space, because this is coming in case any of these adjuvant study end up being positive. You know, if you think about it, too, you already have that situation of melanoma where people are getting checkpoint yep. adjuvantly. In a way, you have it in non-small cell when it's being used in locally advanced disease. To me, that's, you know, consolidation. It's kind of an adjuvant therapy also. It sounded like you were talking about what I've heard described as sort of window of opportunity trial or whatever. You give a drug and somebody's going to go to surgery, Tom. I've seen that in lung. It's sort of, you can call it neoadjuvant. I guess it's neoadjuvant. I think it's been done in bladder also. Has it been done at all in renal? You know, people are going to go for nephrectomy getting a couple weeks of therapy. So it's a really interesting question, Neil, because one of the goals that we need to talk about, and I don't know if we're going to get time to do it today, but we're going to have to talk at some point about how we're going to cure half the patients. You know, that should be our next goal. I think that Tony mentioned it earlier, you know, with Axi Pembro and with Ipinevo, maybe one in 10 patients are going into a long-term durable remission, maybe more, maybe one in eight. But we need to get to a position where we're really making a big dent in patients who are dying from this disease. And the best way of doing that may be moving the drugs earlier in the disease setting, which I think is really important. And the other piece is looking at new combinations to try and improve our cure rate in the metastatic setting. And certainly one of the more attractive approaches, because we've struggled actually in kidney cancer, we've been successful with Ipinevo and Axi-Pembro. If you look at other cancers, lung cancer, bladder cancer, head and neck cancer, you know, we've struggled with the CTA4 PDL1. It's not been universally used. And that's why, again, renal cancer does seem different from the other cancers where the combinations have been successful. So the question is, you know, if we bring them earlier in the disease setting, can we cure half those high-risk patients? And that would make a massive dent in this. And that's why the adjuvant studies, including the ones that Tony's talked about, are really important. The neoadjuvant studies, we haven't been as aggressive in. There are some neoadjuvant studies and window of opportunity studies that are ongoing. There are two attractive points to that. Number one is because the primary tumours still in situ. They are obviously shedding a huge number of neoantigens. There's easier recognition, broader recognition, you would imagine, by having a bigger cancer burden. And therefore, the potential to generate better memory for the future in case relapse occurred. So I think that's the first point. But if you remove that bulk tumour and there's only micrometastasis left behind, it may be much more difficult for immune checkpoint inhibitors to be effective. So that's the hypothesis or one of the hypotheses why it may occur. The second bit, which isn't talked about enough, is remember that if you give neoadjuvant therapy, you can start treatment really quickly. In the real world, in adjuvant setting, you wait a couple of weeks for your nephrectomy, maybe six weeks for a nephrectomy, maybe between two and six, I don't know, but it doesn't happen the next day. And then you have your surgery and then you wait another six weeks. So now you're 12 weeks down the line, you're getting your adjuvant treatment. Whereas actually neoadjuvant, you're starting the next week, you're starting quickly and you're getting effective drugs in really early, effective immune drugs that are designed potentially for long-term term tumour recognition, we hope, obviously, and eradication, generation of activated T cells. And so then you do the debulking surgery, and then you give the period of adjuvant therapy after neoadjuvant therapy. And under those circumstances, it's possible we could induce longer term durable remission. So I actually find the neoadjuvant approach attractive. We have seen data in bladder cancer. We've seen data, terrific data, actually in brain cancer, published in Nature Medicine, three publications there. We've seen data in 
in lung cancer, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and obviously data in melanoma as well, with Christian Blank's great work. And so I think this piece is really exciting. There's also terrific biomarker work to be done there, because you can look at dynamic changes to biomarkers, associated response and resistance. We're going to see data in this space in kidney cancer in the not too distant future. And I personally, you know, when we are treating these patients in 10 or 15 years time, I actually hope we are doing neoadjuvant therapy. I remember talking about neoadjuvant therapy before I became an oncologist in breast cancer, and it seems we've struggled a little bit in the other tumour types. It does make a lot of sense to me, and I think in the future we'll be doing neoadjuvant therapy, surgery, biomarker analysis, and then tailor-made therapy for the future, I hope. Tony, before you mentioned the issue of the patient who has NED after having a metastatic lesion resected, I'm just kind of curious what you do in your own practice with these patients. Yeah, in this patient, I do not use systemic therapy on them. We know now for many, many years, you know, over 20 years, 20, 25 years, there's a subset of patients. We don't know who are these patients. We have an idea that when you resect their metastatic disease, they can have a long-term remission and some of them are cured. And who are these patients? It seems like the evidence is showing patients with lung metastases, for example, compared to brain metastases. Although in my practice, as I have patients with single brain metastases doing well five years later, resected. So it's never, it's, when you have a p-value and a hazard ratio and an odds ratio that is significant, it doesn't mean that applies to one patient. So we have that lung metastasis. When the disease-free survival or the disease-free interval is prolonged, usually over two years, ideally five years. So you have someone that had a stage two renal cell cancer, you're following. Six years later, you have this pulmonary nodule, you know, that is growing, growing. You go back and scans, maybe it was there, but there is no other primary. So this is the same cancer. Maybe it was there and took six years to grow. One, or two in the same lobe, you resect them, those patients could also be cured. Those are examples where certainly you discuss with patient. And with these patients, actually, I do not use any systemic therapy. Same thing with patient where the indication to resect was borderline, but you were able, at least in the short term, get them to be NED. We have no idea of giving systemic therapy when we don't see things on scans in renal cell cancer is better than when we see things on scans. The hope is that with some of these adjuvant studies that involve an enrolled patient with M1 NED. For example, on the pembrolizumab keynote 564 study, we are allowing M1 NED within a year. So at the time of diagnosis, or maybe seven months later, eight months later, you have a resected pulmonary nodule. As long as your time from nephrectomy is less than a year, you're allowed. Hopefully, we have enough patient to have some meaningful conclusion, because we see that a lot in practice. So I'm going to go on now and go through a few of your cases. But one more question before we do, Tom. Just sort of looking back over these critical trials that we just talked about, as well as prior studies. Can you talk a little bit about what we know in terms of predictors of benefit from immunotherapy, particularly PDL1 levels, how they're done in terms of different ways they're done, and also other assays such as tumor mutation burden? Yes, I think the question's quite a difficult one. I think when we look back, and if we go back perhaps 10 or 15 years, 
and we look at historical biomarkers. We started with IL-2 and biomarkers with immunohistochemistry like CA9, which are hypoxic type biomarkers. They have not stood the test of time and we didn't develop any successful biomarkers to sunitinib or pazopinib, axitinib or indeed any of the targeted therapies. With hindsight, actually, with RNA sequencing, you can identify angiogenic signatures. And that work was done in Emotion 150 and Emotion 151. And in Emotion 150, there was a study where we compared a tezolizumab, which is a pdl one inhibitor, with sunitinib, the VEGFTKI. And actually, you could show that those patients who had the angiogenic signature did better with sunitinib and those that had the T-effector interferon gamma-type signature did better with atezolizumab. And so with RNA sequencing, you can identify angiogenic signatures. And actually, when you look at good risk patients, guess what? They have more of the angiogenic signature. And that's why in the IPNEVO trial, the good risk patients don't respond as well to IPNEVO because they've got mainly the angiogenic signature. And when you look at the poor risk patients, they overexpress the immune signature and don't have a high expression of the angiogenic signature. And that's why in those patients the epinevo is outperforming the sunitinib. So that's quite a nice piece. And actually, if you then move forward into Tony's most recent work with Evalimab and axitinib, he's actually confirmed a lot of those findings. One of the really important findings is, number one, is those RNA signatures are really important. It looks like they are discriminatory and can be validated. And indeed, they have been validated in Emotion 151 as well. So number one is I think RNA signatures are important. They're not here today. We're not using them today, but I think we will in the future. The second piece is around tumor mutational burden. Tumor mutational burden is low in renal cancer. We've done a lot of work on this. And actually, it doesn't matter how high your cut point is, you don't seem to have a cut point which individuals respond to therapy. But the third piece is around PDL1. And the really interesting thing about PDL1 is in the second line setting with the volumab, it appeared to be prognostic and not predictive for both drugs. But in the frontline setting, there does appear to be a degree of prediction when you compare Ipinevo versus sunitinib, and also actually axiavalumab versus sunitinib. But the strange thing is not that the ipinevo patients who are biomarker positive are doing so much better. The strange thing is sunitinib does not appear to work well on pdl one positive biomarker-positive renal cancer patients. Hmm. So it's actually the sunitinib patients who are biomarker-positive who are doing really badly. And that comes back to that piece around if you're positive, you have a less strong VEGF signature. And that's that piece that we're beginning to unravel now. And Tony said this previously, and I'm going to repeat it. The IDMC score is not important in its own right. If you have anemia, the anemia is not driving the fact that ipinevo is working better than sunitinib. It's just a surrogate for the biology of the disease. And the biology of the disease is those patients with more aggressive disease have less clear angiogenic signatures, therefore have porous disease. And because they have these more powerful T-effector signatures, those patients are responding better to immune therapy than drugs like sunitinib. So I want to go through a few of these cases that were submitted. Why don't we start out, we were talking about Ipinevo, and Tony, you have a 64-year-old man. Could you just sort of briefly present what happened with him? So this man came to my attention 
because had systemic symptoms, and that was in March. And uh, was discovered patient had fever, weight loss, and soon for like three weeks, soon as he had hematuria, he went to the ER and was discovered to have a large, large kidney mass, a right kidney mass. He underwent nephrectomy that showed clear cell renal cell carcinoma with around 40% sarcomatoid feature. And at that time, this man did not have any metastatic disease and was not referred for any further management, which, you know, is appropriate, I would say. However, almost a year later, presented with the same symptoms that triggered imaging and was found to have metastases in the pancreas and the spleen. So he underwent pancreatectomy and splenectomy. And on his follow-up scans, we're now in June, he had them in February, he had paraesophageal nodules or mental nodule, biopsied again, clear cell renal cell carcinoma. So he underwent at that time four cycle of nivolumab and ipilimumab with best response being PR. And when he was, when he finished ipilimumab and was on nivolumab, nivolumab was held because of grade two epididymitis and hypoglossitis. And we ruled out any potential infection with the epididymitis, was referred to urology, got an ultrasound, got a urinary exam. And with hypoglossitis, also we ruled out any potential fungal infection or anything. And when you go back, in time, and this happened over two years actually, and you start asking the patient about symptoms specific to the epididymitis and hypoglossitis, some of them were there and get worse with time. So that tells you important to see the patient. The patient then was restarted after his symptoms. He had low-dose steroid. The symptoms got suddenly better, so gave you a potential diagnosis here. And we continued nivolumab actually for two years. The patient achieved the CR. So now we are almost four years later from the time that started nivolumab and ipilimumab. And the symptoms started to come again. So in June last month, we decided we had a joint decision to completely stop therapy. The patient is in near CR and continue following him with serial imaging. So continuing along the theme of things I've never heard of before, Tom, epididymitis and hypoglycitis with checkpoint inhibitors. Have you ever heard of that or seen it, Tom? So, you know, it's a good question. We've actually have seen hypoglycitis. We've seen that with hylocyl 2. We used to be one of the two UK centres that gave hylocyl 2. And I remember treating a patient 10 years ago who got hypoglycitis associated with hydocyl 2. So wow. it's a recognized side effect of immune therapy. And epididymitis is entirely reasonable within those categories. Well, I've not seen epididymitis before. So what I would say is, yeah, I wouldn't call that unexpected. And I think that one of the really important points, Neil, I've said one thing about toxicity already, about the importance of emergency departments, the importance around patient and doctor's information. The second thing I'd like to say, which isn't talked about enough, is that we use CTC criteria to measure toxicity. And those CTC criteria are really based around chemotherapy. Right. And that's what C stands for. Now, so 
actually immune therapy, what we're seeing is these rare side effects that Tony's described here that's happening to one or two or 3% of patients. It's not happening frequently enough for us to write them all down and to report them all and for them to be frequent enough in each trial. But what we are seeing is one or two percent of patients getting really rare side effects. And I've got a patient who got really bad pemphigus of the leg, really bad skin rash, we took a biopsy, ends up with pemphigus. You know, we thought they were actually on VEGF-targeted therapy at the time. We thought it was VEGF-TKI therapy. It wasn't. It was actually really bad immune-related pemphigus. And, you know, you see that. I remember a case we saw of demyelinating brain disease, where the patient had demyelinating brain disease and got an MS-like picture, which was extremely unusual. Of course, it's one in a thousand cases, so it's not happening in all the trials. But if you add all of these up together, what you're getting is the unexpected. And so if you're treating these patients with immune therapy, what I would say is expect the unexpected. If you're seeing things that you've not read about in the books and you can't find online, but you haven't got to the bottom of it yet, you know, a neuropathy of some description, an unusual skin rash, insulin acquiring diabetes. Well, I think our institution might have been the first to describe that. We saw a case of insulin acquiring, someone pitched up their emergency department with a diabetic ketoacidosis. You know, it was four or five years ago now. But, you know, that at the time people didn't, you know, of course it's immune related. It's now much more recognized and we see it maybe in 1% of patients. But do expect the unexpected and you probably need to treat 200 patients before you can be confident that you've seen some of these rarer side effects. So if it is rare, get together in multidisciplinary settings, reach out to people. And then the last point I wanted to make about toxicity, which I also think is important, is at the beginning of this journey, we just phoned up the gastroenterologists or we'd phone up the dermatologists or the endocrinologists. But if they're not experienced in these drugs, they're no better at treating it than we are. And what we were doing at the beginning was we were doing investigations. Actually, if you think it's immune-related toxicity and it's severe, you need to start steroids first and investigate second, not the other way around. Because if you let these toxicities like pneumonitis, colitis, and transaminitis, if you let those escalate unchecked while you're doing the investigation, they're a whole load more difficult to treat when they're more severe. So I want to hear, Tom, about your 32-year-old woman in a second, but I was just flashing on Julie Bramer has this thing. She says anything that ends in an itis, you can see. But I'm just kind of curious, the hypoglycitis that this patient had, what symptoms and how did it present clinically? You know, the patient actually simply had tongue soreness. So it's similar to if you want mucositis that is functional. Send him to dentistry. We send him to an oral surgeon. We looked at things going on and nothing there. So think about it. It's almost the gland just around the tongue being affected. And the other thing, when you rule out other situations, you know, in the hypoglossitis, potentially the first thing you think about is thrush, fungal infection. When you give them steroid, which shouldn't get better, you know, if these are fungal, and the immediate improvement over 24 hour in symptoms, especially if they're, because I just put that diagnosis there. So we've seen, as Tom had said, myocarditis, any itis you can name it. We've seen people with salivary gland problems that end up 
having a Jogren-like. And most recently, I've seen two patients actually with blepharitis. They creep up on us. Wow. And since blepharitis and, you know, having a chalazion or anything are common, we don't always pay attention. And we tend to have sometimes a knee-jerk reflex and send the patient to specialists. And the specialists come back, you know, to us. I don't think they have more experience than we do. I mean, dealing with immune-related adverse event, it's almost like now doing robotic prostatectomies. Once you see 200, 300, you're fine with it. And the oncologists end up and the nursing team, the folks with the most experience. And I want to add one small thing is about the steroids. There's a lot in the literature there. And I would say it is controversial, and I'll tell you my own view, where if you use corticosteroid and inhibit the T-cell function in general, you may blunt the immune response to treatment. I think this is a very controversial statement, including with folks recently that published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology and others. I think when you need to use steroid, you need to use steroid. And actually, you may need to use them with a very slow taper. I think in many of these studies, when you adjust for the patient baseline characteristic, you see that their disease is actually really aggressive. So in my book, when you need to use the steroid, you use steroid. Is it possible that, you know, steroids make the disease grow and you lose that response to immunotherapy? I think it's less likely in my book. I think an immune-related adverse event then you need to handle is very important. Luckily, though, there is mounting evidence, perhaps not as much in renal cell, because I don't think this is tumor-dependent, that immune-related adverse event may be associated with more responses and more durable responses. So you feel that, you know, this is not a patient that had already progressive disease and you're adding steroid on it. Luckily, you know, sometimes mutually exclusive. So I want to make sure that that point is well taken. I don't know what Tom thinks, but I'm very liberal with the use of steroids. Uh, just flashing on this case we had, I think, Tom, you might have been there. It was, a, I think, ASCO GU of a patient on really bad Sojourn syndrome related to checkpoint therapy that had this incredible response in the lung to metastatic disease. Why don't we get into another case, though? And, Tom, you have a 32-year-old lady, very young patient. What happened there? So this is a lady who, who we actually saw quite recently, and she had a small child and came with her husband to clinic, having had a CT scan after an episode of hematuria. She'd been really quite well in the past with irritable bowel syndrome, but nothing of note and wasn't on a regular medication. The CT showed a T2N0M1 tumour. The metastasis were in the pancreas, but also in the bone, and the bone was problematic. There were more than one site in the bone, and that obviously worries me a great deal. No one likes any metastasis. Pancreatic metastasis tend to grow slowly in my experience, but the bone metastasis are a real problem. So that worried me a great deal. She was anemic as well. And she therefore, because of the treatment-free, you know, the interval being short, she scores a point there and she scores a point for anemia. So she's intermediate risk group with two points. And, you know, this is the group for me that in the past we probably would have done a nephrectomy on with Carmina. We don't do that anymore in my opinion opinion. We've actually been, as Tony described earlier, you know, if you want to do an nephrectomy, in my opinion, you need a multidisciplinary approval of that. 
surgeons performing nephrectomies on patients without a wider discussion, I think is probably the wrong approach. I know that there are very experienced surgeons, both sides of the Atlantic. But my current approach to this is to say, if you can get a multidisciplinary group of people to agree this is the right thing to do, who are familiar with the Carmina data, under those circumstances do a nephrectomy. But we're not doing nephrectomies on patients with intermediate risk disease and bone metastasis. We're actually much more keen to intervene. You know, we actually, in the UK, currently, we have access to Ipinevo. It now has European and NICE approval, driven by its great survival advantage. And so for her with intermediate risk disease, a year ago, it would have been sunitinib and pazopinib. But now there's a discussion for her about what treatment she should have. And clearly, the European and American guidelines with intermediate risk disease would support both Ipinevo and Axipembro. Both treatment options are attractive I've described already, Axipembro, less mature follow-up, probably more impressive response and PFS data, and a hazard ratio for survival of 0.53. I've talked about Ipinevo, more mature data, perhaps less impressive PFS data, but we know about the long-term durable remissions and quality of life. You know, I actually would be happy with both approaches. I could see myself giving this patient Axipembro. She actually got Ipinevo because Axipembro is not yet EMA approved. She had Ipinevo and she's actually in the middle of treatment and she's doing well and she's responded well to therapy. One of the questions which one of the surgeons put to me the other day was, well, you're now, you know, a few months down the line. Should we be cutting out her kidney now? because you've got control of her metastatic disease and the pancreatic metastasis is smaller. The BOMET's the same, they don't respond to therapy. But should we be cutting out this seven centimetre tumour that's now four centimetres? And my opinion of that is we shouldn't be doing that as it currently stands. You know, if we're two years down the line and there's no other evidence of disease or a year and a half down the line, I'm happy to have that debate. But number one, it's currently too early. And number two is there's no evidence that interval surgery is a benefit to these patients. I don't know what Tony's opinion is of what I've just said. Yeah, no, I agree. I think because of the age, even if I had Axie and Pembro, I would have done, you know, Nevo IP. There was no contraindication for it and looked at that potential, you know, CR. It's a great case, Tom. I would have also, I mean, sent this patient parallelly to, and I'm sure you did, to a genetic counselor and looked at the histology again to make sure this is not translocation renal cell cancer in young female like this, knowing that, you know, it's uncommon but more common in these younger females. The question is, with a response rate of 42% with intermediate poor risk disease, Tom, if this patient doesn't respond, the most important question, what's your second-line treatment? Is it going to be TKI alone, or now you have Pembroaxi approved, and let's say it's approved independent of the line of therapy? Would you use a TKI, wherever that TKI is, cabozentinib, axitinib, or would you continue with the checkpoint blocker and use Pembroaxi? And this is a question I cannot answer in my practice, but if I feel a patient progressed on a PD-1 inhibitor-based therapy like Nevo-Ipi, I don't know if there is any 
evidence that patients that progress, let's say, on Nevo have any chance to respond to Pembro. But I cannot rule out the possibility of synergy between pembrolizumab, let's say, or a PD-1 inhibitor, and a TKI, even after you progress on a checkpoint blocker. And hopefully you and I are able to answer this important question in a randomized trial. So just to maybe touch a little bit more in terms of toxicity, a couple cases here, just to probe a little bit, I'm just kind of curious what happened. Tom, you have a 68-year-old man who was on Ipinevo and developed diarrhea and fever. What happened there? So this was one of the first cases we treated, actually. And it's a good case because the patient actually wasn't that unwell. And they had some grade one symptoms. And had they been on sunitinib and phoned our nurse two years ago, they probably would have said, stop the tablets for a couple of days and see how you feel. And that would have been reasonable. We weren't hauling these patients in for blood tests at that point. But when we started immune therapy, we have started doing that. And actually, when we looked at this patient, we brought them in and they had a transaminitis. Their platelet count had also dropped. We see that with immune therapy toxicity. You see the platelet count drop. And that makes me, those two made me nervous. And because of the diarrhea, we did a CT scan and we showed a bit of pneumonitis and we showed a bit of colitis. And so you actually look at this patient, he's actually saying, listen, I'm feeling okay, but they've got a pneumonitis, they've got colitis, they've got transaminitis, the drugs affecting their platelet. This is actually a patient who's got sort of multi-organ failure with immune therapy. And these are the patients that make me extremely nervous. And I think that this underlines the important nature of that really swift early intervention. I'm really pleased I was given the opportunity to reply to what Tony said earlier about the steroids. I'm liberal with the steroids. You know, this patient, obviously this patient needs steroids. But the story really is for this is around the early intervention. And then the second piece is if you look, his symptoms actually recover very quickly on the steroids, although the transaminitis is slower. But the key is you need to reduce the steroids slowly. It's not a case of saying, okay, his symptoms are better, we're day seven, the scan looks okay, let's stop the steroids. Because what happens is this bounces back, and then what happens when it does bounce back, then it's harder to treat a second time, and then you don't get the patients back on the immune therapy because everyone gets nervous saying, well, the transaminitis is going to come back if we stop the steroids. So the key to this is early intervention, be nervous, and particularly, and the reason I chose this case, is some of the sunitinib-type toxicity in the past which we ignored, is super important with immune therapy. And when you do start, don't stop the steroids early, taper slowly, and what you can do is start the immune therapy four weeks or five weeks later. Don't be panicked to restart the immune therapy. It has a very long half-life. And make sure the toxicity's gone back to normal before you jump in with more treatment. Otherwise, you're going to get into the original problems you started with. Yeah, that's really great advice. So let's finish out, Tony, with your 56-year-old man. Always intrigued if I see the term ICI-induced myocarditis. What happened? Yeah, so this is a young patient doing well, had a radical nephrectomy and had clear cell RC and 10% sarcomatoid feature and upon staging was found to have lung metastases and bone metastases. And we started him on a trial with avilumab axitinib at that time and he got two infusions, but with the second infusion had a grade three infusion reaction with shortness of breath and chest pain. 
Now with avilumab, which is an IgG1 wild type, with the initial trial, there were reported a lot of infusion reaction. Very few, if any, grade three. This was unusual. That's why there is a pre, in the label there is pre-medication with acetaminophen and H blockers. So we stopped avilumab completely and the patient, you know, got better and got a scan after only two cycles. And, you know, each cycle was actually two weeks here and had a partial response. Wow. Totally partial response. A month later, so we decided at that time, let the patient get better and we'll see when to restart acetinib. So the patient presented to the ER a month later with shortness of dress, orthopnea, a workup was done and was found to have an ejection fraction of 29%. And luckily was, and this is by pure luck, on the cardiology service and the attending that was rounding was an attending, and you know we have a huge cardiology service at the Brigham, was interested in cardio-oncology. So this is not was a consultant whose background is cardiac catheterism or echocardiogram or anything was that. So immediately an MRI was done that showed diffuse myocarditis from a toxic cause and the steroid were actually started that day and a biopsy was obtained later after the steroid by a few days. It was negative, but we know very well that those endomyocardial biopsies sometimes are patchy. So we tapered the steroid and we repeated the patient got better, the ultrasound and the ejection fraction went up to 50%. So myocarditis, again, like Julie was saying, you know, any itis is possible. Luckily, myocarditis are very, very rare. With all the phase one, two, or three, with checkpoint blocker in renal cell and bladder cancer, I have seen two, and one was a referral, and this was the second one. So, but they could happen, and if you have a high index of suspicion, you need referral. So, just curious, what's the patient's current situation? Well, with more follow-up, the patient actually has a complication, we believe, from the myocarditis, developed a significant pericardial effusion around a month later that needed an admission initially to the ICU, and this was complicated by a tamponade. And around that time, I repeated the staging because, as you know, with oncology patient, metastatic coming, with every intervention, the question by the consultant team is the prognosis and where we are to know how much you're going to push. You know, and we repeated the scans at that time. Remember, the patient had a partial response after two cycles, and at that time had progression, slight progression in the bones, but had brain metastases. So based on that, the patient, you know, got better and was started on cabozentinib and, you know, was planned for a nailing, for a rod nailing for one of the painful metastases. And he underwent surgery, and unfortunately, around the extubation, he developed a PEA arrest, which, of course, he doesn't have the best, you know, organ function here. And he survived that PEA arrest. He had a decrease in his ejection fraction. But even with that, we started him later on on cabozentinib. He did well for a few months, then had more disease progression. Six months later, unfortunately, the patient passed away from disease progression for sure, but also with all, you know, the background comorbidities that happen initially with the myocarditis, I do not think this has helped the patient. 
So I asked Tom before about this issue of Evelumab as opposed to Pembro plus Axitinib. Um, you very much looked at this issue of Evelumab. Do you see a current role? Is there a situation where you use Evelumab and Axitinib right now, Tony? There is no situation, you know, I can think of. I participated my disclosure in all the Exitinib Avilumab studies, so I have patients now that have a great response that are transitioning to standard of care because they don't want to see me every two weeks. I try not to take this personal, but, you know, they, they, so they go on Exitinib Avilumab, a standard of care where I perhaps can see them every four weeks, six weeks, and they're doing very well. I think with Pembrolizumab Exitinib, overall survival benefit, actually, it's in our guidelines. I really hope we have an embarrassment of choices where we have many of these events and these discussion with you, Neil, and try to find out what are the situation where one combination over the other makes sense. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today, Renal Cell Carcinoma Edition.